Hi, and welcome to Being Lutheran, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the excellencies of Jesus Christ and the biblical theology expressed in the Lutheran Confessions. Today, Pastor Jason Goodham continues the Being Lutheran interviewing series, interviewing Jordan Cooper. Being Lutheran is sponsored by the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary. Whatever your vocation is, start here, go anywhere, grounded in God's Word. All right. Uh, welcome to the Being Lutheran podcast. Some more unusual business here for Being Lutheran as we adapt to a new recording schedule and as we give Brett time to change churches and adjust to his new congregation up in Anoka, Minnesota. Uh, I am Pastor Jason Goodham, and I have with me another special guest. Dr. Jordan Cooper is with us from the Justin Center podcast. He is the president of the seminary for the AALC what other accolades and praises can I rain upon you, Jordan, as you introduce yourself oh, to boy. our audience? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, yeah, so I'm the, I'm the president of the American Lutheran Theological Seminary, uh, which is the seminary of the ALC, and I also am an executive director of Justin Center. And uh, we, with Justin Center, we, do, we basically, our, our purpose is to uh, teach people Lutheran theology in a way that is, you know, academically rigorous, um, but also is very, you know, concerned with the issues going on in our world and in the church today. So we do that through publishing books, a podcast, a YouTube channel, seminars, uh, and that covers most of what we do. Great. Yeah, uh, I got to give you credit. You are responsible uh, for introducing me to several American theologians I uh, did not previously have exposure to. So I've really been enjoying Henry Eister Jacobs. Yeah. And you're a big Franklin Revere Widener guy. Uh, so I've really enjoyed that. Yeah. 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 Thanks. That's, that's one of the things that we, um, I guess that was kind of in some ways my motivation to start Justin Center as an organization was some of these authors that had kind of been forgotten in American Lutheranism um, because we, we tend to focus kind of narrowly on people that were within the Lutheran church, Missouri Synod Wisconsin Senate as well, somewhat, but there are all of these other great Lutheran theologians in the United States who have published so much just great material that's so relevant um, that has just been out of print for a long time and people haven't really paid much attention. So um, partially this is just, that was just the result of my converting to Lutheranism as a college student and not having much money. So I looked for free PDFs online on Google books and, uh, <laughs> discovered a lot of these authors and realized like, Hey, this is a really great stuff. Why is nobody publishing this? And, uh, that, that led me to start what was the publishing house, um, that then became kind of everything else that we do. That's great. That actually, uh, works as a, an excellent segue for what we're going to be talking about this first part of the interview you are not a lifelong Lutheran. You've got quite an interesting, uh, to, to use a phrase that I kind of roll my eyes at regularly, you have quite an interesting faith journey. Uh, and, and, <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and for our interest today, you are a former Calvinist, right? Yes. Yeah. No, I don't have the typical kind of growing up Lutheran story like many in Minnesota have. You know, I, uh, I, I'm i not really from the Midwestern or Lutheran culture. I, I grew up in a Reformed tradition in the Northeastern United States um, in Massachusetts. I live, live in New York now. Um, so I, I was, you know, baptized as an infant in a Presbyterian church. And my, my mother actually converted at 10th Presbyterian church. Um, which was a very famous Reformed um, congregation. James Boyce is a very well-known uh, figure who was the pastor there at the time. And my parents were part of a Reformed church plant, and I went to 
uh, Reformed College to study theology. And it was while I was there that I encountered Lutheranism for the first time. And through a read of a lot of Lutheran sources, the Book of Concord, the reading of Martin Luther, and then uh, Francis Pieper, uh, the, the great dogmatician of the Missouri Synod, uh, through reading those sources and, and dealing with a lot of questions that arose with my Reformed theological background, it eventually led me uh, into the Lutheran tradition. So that's uh, where I ended up, and I've been there since. Great. Well, you know, as a Lutheran, I'm happy for that as someone who's benefited from your ministry. Uh, Thank you. We get uh, a lot of questions on the Being Lutheran podcast, especially as we finished going through the catechisms and now we're going through the Augsburg Confession uh, about Calvinism and about Reformed doctrine. And uh, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on here um, we use a lot of the same terminology or a lot of the same ideas, but the truth behind them doesn't always match up. There's a little flux, there's a little shift. And I try uh, my best to answer those questions. All I can ever have is a Lutheran understanding and a Lutheran assessment of Calvinist doctrine. I've never been a Calvinist. I've never been in the Reformed Church. I am, as a Minnesotan, a lifelong Lutheran. It's in my blood. Um, and, and I don't necessarily want to misrepresent Calvinism, but I also don't really have a vested interest in teaching a class on the Institutes or on, you know, the Westminster right. Shorter Catechism or anything like that. So I wanted to go to a source. Uh, you have, uh, I'll plug this too. You have an excellent kind of ongoing series with Todd Wilkin on issues, et cetera, where yeah. you're working through Bible studies on Calvinist proof texts. But but yes. I kind of wanted to, uh, it, you know, anyone who's listening can check those out at issues at etc.com uh, or is it .org? Uh, you'll I think find it's it. .org. Yeah, issues etc.org. Sorry, Todd. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm sure he'll really care about that. Um I wanted to go to the source so that we can kind of clarify some of these things from someone who's actually been a Calvinist. My big question, kind of the big idea that I want to start from is you will hear, and especially, I guess they're called like the Escondido School or the West Coast Calvinists, uh, Mike Horton, Tim Riddlebarger, Individuals I really enjoy, and I've consumed much of their materials in my own studies, uh, they will talk regularly about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to hear your assessment on what they're talking about with that and the similarities and differences between that system and the Lutheran understanding of law and gospel. Yeah, um, so, uh, yeah, you have to recognize the Escondido school of thought is kind of its own unique school of thought, you know, as you've already pointed out. And the, those particular theologians are in some ways very influenced by Lutheranism. Uh, and, and they'll acknowledge that as well. They have a high regard for Lutheran sources. And so they will use probably more Lutheran terminology than some of the other Reformed uh, theologians will use. Which in some ways as a Lutheran, I appreciate, but in some ways it actually makes it more frustrating because it makes it sound more as if they really do agree with us when like they really don't because they mean very different things by a lot of the terms they use. Uh, And by that, I don't want to say that there's no overlap because there is, there's important overlap and um, you know, I appreciate the work of Mike Horton, his, his uh, volumes on justification, uh, 
are excellent. If anybody wants to read up on justification, of course, there are going to be points of difference, but those volumes are, are fantastic. And I, I really appreciate those. And I've published with Modern Reformation and, you know, um, but one of the things that does get frustrating, especially with two things, one is the distinction between law and gospel, and the other is the two kingdoms. And the Escondido School speaks about both of those ideas. And while there definitely are areas of overlap, they are not identical with what the Lutheran view of those ideas is. And this becomes, I think, especially apparent when you read a lot of Reformed critiques of Lutheranism, is that what they're really criticizing is a certain school of Reformed thought that they disagree with, and then they say that it's Lutheran. <laughs> so, so because of that, yeah, that gets really frustrating, especially with, um, I mean, I just, just yesterday I was doing a, a podcast response to someone on Law and Gospel who was Reformed and you know, portrayed law and gospel in just this very, very strange way. But um, but there's a lot of just confusion out there about what exactly the law gospel distinction is. What is it that's Lutheran? What is it that's from the Escondido guys? What's the difference? So, um, you know, you point out here at the beginning, and, and this is a helpful place to go probably, is the covenant of works and covenant of grace distinction. Now, first of all, for Lutherans, we have no covenant of works, covenant of grace distinction. So it's just not there. You're not going to find it in our theologians. You're not going to find it in the catechism and the book of Concord. It's just not there. Um, but Reformed theology has a, a, a very highly emphasized focus on the covenants, the covenants in scripture. Now, covenant in scripture is certainly an important category. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham. He makes a covenant with Moses. We see the New Testament being called the new covenant. Uh, you know, Jesus says in, in the words of institution, you know, this is a new covenant in his blood. So there, there's no doubt that covenant is a very important theme in scripture. But the Reformed tend to make this more than just a, an important theme in scripture, but kind of the overarching theme of all of scripture is this theme of covenant. And so Reformed theology speaks about covenant theology. Sometimes you can even refer to Reformed theology as covenantal theology uh, because covenant is so central to nearly everything else within the system. They even speak about a covenant in eternity past between the persons of the, of the Godhead, um, the covenant of redemption. So like everything can be tied to covenant. Uh, and you see this in someone like um, Michael Horton. He's got a, a four volume set that I forget the the name of the series, but each book is called Covenant and whatever. Covenant and Salvation is the one in Salvation. So it's like Covenant, the idea behind that is we can address every topic of systematic theology by connecting it with this notion of covenant. So that right there at the outset is, is going to be an important difference, that covenant becomes a lens through which we read so much else. So what exactly then is the covenant of works, covenant of grace distinction in, in light of that? Uh, and there's there's so much that we could unpack here. And this is like a hugely debated issue in the Reformed world right now. But let's get, if I, if I can just summarize quickly um, before spending the whole time talking about. Um, <laughs> well, that's great if you do. <laughs> okay, okay. Because uh, it's hard to boil down. When I explain some of the, the debates, sometimes people are like, what, what are you even talking about? Like, this is very complex and confusing. Um, but if I can boil down the basics, it's, it's this. God essentially works in terms of two covenants to humanity. There is a covenant of works and a covenant of grace. The covenant of works is the prelapsarian covenant. And by prelapsarian, we mean before the fall. That's just like the fancy way of saying the time before the fall. 
Uh, and so the, this covenant before the fall, God makes with Adam. And he says to Adam, basically, here are a series of conditions. You obey my will, and you will be blessed in this way. If you disobey my will, you will be cursed in this way. And essentially, this is a time of probation for Adam, so that Adam was kind of given a test in this probationary period. Now, if Adam fulfilled those terms of the covenant, if he was perfectly obedient to God, um, then the result of that is that he would be confirmed in a state of righteousness, and so would the rest of humanity. This is a covenant that is based on works, so that if Adam followed the law, he would be blessed with eternal life. And since Adam was the head of that covenant, all those who are part of the line of Adam, who he represented, which was all of humanity, we too would enter into eternal bliss because of the work of, of Adam in this covenant of works. Now, of course, Adam did not obey, as we know, the scriptural narrative, you know, he disobeys and therefore he broke the covenant of works. Then God, in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 15, God establishes a new covenant. He gives a promise, um, and this promise, known as the Proto-Evangel or the first gospel, is that there will come a seed from the woman who would crush the head of, of the serpent. And this is the beginning of a new covenant, a new agreement that is based not on, on works, but on grace. And so that covenant, then, has many different administrations. Uh, it comes in many different forms. So you have the covenant that God makes with Abraham, which is an administration of the covenant of, of grace. You have the covenant with David that is then uh, another administration of the covenant of grace. You have the new covenant, which is another administration of the covenant of grace. So the covenant of works is essentially the covenant God makes before the fall. The covenant of grace is all of the covenants God makes after the fall. Where this gets a little complicated is in how the Mosaic Covenant works. Yeah. Uh, and here's where I think the Lutheran law gospel distinction is just so much easier. But maybe we can I can explain the Reformed view first. Maybe then we can we can deal with what our kind of take on that would be. Um, so the covenant with Moses is is really confusing because on the one hand it's very much a conditional covenant. And there's no, there's no doubt about that in the text. Um, the people of Israel say, all of this we will do, right? They say, we, we have the obligations of the covenant upon ourselves. We are going to do this. And there is this whole, if you read through the end of the book of Deuteronomy, um, you have all of these covenant blessings and covenant curses. I mean, you have, I mean they're, they're enumerated. It's, it's very lengthy. It's, and it's clear that there is this conditional principle going on there in the Mosaic Covenant, that if the people do something, they will be rewarded. If they don't do something, they will be cursed. So the question then is within the reform tradition is, well, how does that fit in with this covenant of grace? So you have a few different views that fit in there and it gets very complicated. So one is to say, well, it is a covenant of grace, just like the Abrahamic covenant and it's all grace. The problem with that is that that necessarily results in a confusion of law and gospel. Like there's no other way around it. If the, the Mosaic covenant, which is full of law and condition and blessing based upon obedience, if that's just a covenant of grace, well, now grace involves all of this conditionality within it. Um, so we would certainly have a problem with that, that view. 
So the other way to take it uh, that some Reformed theologians have done is they talk about a um, they talk about a kind of representation of the covenant um, of works in the Mosaic administration. Okay, so this is a um, this is like, like a, a new covenant of works that God makes with us essentially. So it's again a covenant of works, and you have this parallel with Adam in the garden, and you have um, Israel in the land. And then they are given a kind of conditional promise or obedience so that this is kind of a renewed covenant of works and they break the covenant of works. Then Jesus comes in and fulfills it. So the whole thing can get, can get a little bit complicated as you're talking about um, the Mosaic covenant. So I know that's a long overview. Um, <laughs> any, if you need any cl- clarifications uh, to that, please go ahead and ask what, whatever you want to well, it's, kind of fill it, in the, the blanks there. It's not like I put you in a tough spot at all when I just basically asked you to summarize an entire theological tradition in like 15 minutes. Oh, so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> the way I have heard Calvinists explain how Sinai is a covenant of grace, and I don't know if this is a new yeah. thing or not, um, is that they point to Matthew 5 and say that God intended the law to be fulfilled by Christ and that's what makes it a covenant of grace. Yeah, so that's true, right? I mean, we would certainly say that's true. So part of, you have to understand that part of the covenant of grace for the reformed system is that in the covenant of grace, it's not totally disconnected from the covenant of works in that for the covenant of grace to be truly fulfilled and enacted, someone still needs to fulfill that covenant of works that Adam was under. And since we cannot do it, of course, we need a second Adam. So Jesus, uh, his work is, is explained largely as his work as a federal head or, or a, um, a legal representative, right? So Jesus ends up being this, this legal or federal representative. He's the head of the covenant. What he does will be counted to his people. And they see that representative work as being solely for the elect, which, you know, of course, there'll be a diff- certainly a difference there. Um, so Jesus, in his work as the second Adam, he actually fulfills the covenant of, of works. Um, so certainly they're going to point to that in terms of the Mosaic covenant. Yes, they are going to say that Jesus ultimately fulfills that, that law um, that was there at, at Sinai for us. So let's, you know, we've got five, ten minutes left here. Uh, let's talk about a Lutheran assessment of what they're doing Uh what we can take and appreciate, because I, mean, I think there are some aspects of covenant that Lutherans would do well to recognize as kind of a, a right. hermeneutical tool as we study scripture. But what are the big areas of departure uh, as far as we as Lutherans have when we assess covenant or Calvinist theology from this perspective? Yeah, I think so. There, you know, there's there's good and bad there, right? So we would say that covenant is not just this overarching theme in scripture in the way. We wouldn't use it in the way that Calvinists do. Um, and that's not to say it's not an important theme in scripture and doesn't mean that we should ignore it or we don't care about covenants, <laughs> you know? Like, clearly this is something that's, that's biblical. But I think a, a way that I've kind of summarized the difference is this. If a Calvinist is going to explain law and gospel, they're going to see it kind of as a 
like maybe a, a point that is underneath the, this covenantal scheme, right? That kind of takes the centrality. In law and gospel, maybe is a part of that, but there's all this other stuff that's a part of it too. We would say instead, I think that law and gospel is the more important thing that we're talking about. And covenant is one way in which God enacts his word of law and gospel toward his people, right? So maybe it, it's, I think it's an issue of, of ordering, kind of what's the more prominent idea there. So when we're talking about law and gospel, we really mean, we're not just talking about covenantal administrations. Uh, we're talking about something broader than that, which is simply God's promises and God's commands. We would say that God's promises are his gospel, um, the promises that he gives us for, of salvation uh, and, and the free gift of salvation. And then we have um, commands. So we have that which is conditional, where God tells us to do things, and that is law. And, and so that plays itself out in, in covenants, and we can look at each of those administrations and ask the question, well, how does, how does law and gospel fit into that scheme? So we, and we can start, even if we start, you know, before, before the fall, you're not generally, and I say generally because there actually are a couple quotes from Luther in sermons that do make it sound as if Adam could have earned eternal life for himself by obeying God's law. It's not that there's no precedent for a covenant of works at all in some early Lutherans. You see it very occasionally. It's not prominent, though. The majority of the time, it's it's described that Adam's place in the garden was gift. Like, Adam was created by grace. He was placed there, you know, in a position without any merit. And, you know, that, that he was in a kind of passive before God, he was, he was in a covenant of grace in the beginning, if we're going to call it a covenant. Um, and there's some debate about whether we can even use the term covenant to refer to that or not. There's a quote in Hosea that's often debated as to whether it's a reference to Adam or not, but uh, where the term covenant is used. But essentially, he's in the presence of God, and he is being fed sacramentally by the tree of life. So we would say that Adam, at least I would see it, and many Lutherans would see it in this way, and it's not specifically addressed in our confessions. That's why I'm being a little careful about this, because we don't want to, I don't want to impose it as say this is a confessional distinctive when it's not really addressed that clearly. But um, generally, it's been the case that this is seen as, as a gracious relationship that Adam has with God, so that he just is in the state of grace by God's grace. He remains in that state of grace by by receiving the sacrament that is a tree of life. And so the state of Adam in some ways is not that different than the state that we're in in grace, except of course Adam doesn't have sin. So yeah, it is different in that way, but in the sense that he's not meriting eternal life for himself, it's still a gift. However, Adam can lose that and he can lose that by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We would say Adam lost that state of, state of grace. So we're not really gonna talk about the first covenant as a covenant of works in the same way. Um, we will certainly say law plays a role there because law is simply God's command. And in, in a state without sin, the commands of God or the law of God is simply instruction as to how to live. It's not threatening. It doesn't bring death. None of those things. It, it's just, it, it's the instruction that we rejoice in. We freely obey God's law. And without sin, that's the way it is. Um, as Adam sinned, now the function of the law is that it brings death. It brought death to Adam because he chose to disobey it. Now it brings death. So we would say then, and if you look at the, the promise in Genesis 3, that is the gospel, right? That's a promise, free promise. If you look at the um, what happens with Abraham, Abraham is asleep. God puts him to sleep and makes a promise that he will bless Abraham. It's unconditional. 
right? Abraham has nothing, no role to play. There, there are no conditions to this. But then uh, we have the Mosaic covenant or the Mosaic administration, which is different because there is a lot of law. Uh, and there are a lot of commands. It doesn't have the same kind of con- unconditional nature as that promise of Genesis 3 or that promise with Abraham. So when you get to the Mosaic Covenant, uh, instead of talking um, you know, about the covenant of works in the garden and that relation to, you know, to Sinai, and there certainly are parallels, by the way, though, textually. Like, there, I mean, in a way, Israel is the new Eden in that this is the place where God's presence is. They are the new Adam in some way, the people of Israel. Like these connections are are certainly there. And, and I don't think we can really deny it. I think those are textually just very clear. Um, but I think it's it's much easier to simply say, well, what happens with Moses is both law, there's both law and gospel within that covenant. Because on the one hand, we do have those promises of forgiveness. We have the sacrificial system, which are a picture of Christ. So there is this promise of forgiveness that is repeated there with the, the continuing sacrifices. But we do have the conditionality in the Mosaic Covenant that's not there in the Abrahamic, and that's just the law, right? So in the law, in the Mosaic Covenant, has, as we would talk about, it's three uses. There's the civil use. God is setting up an a entire civil system for a nation, so that's really clear. Um, and it does have what we call that you know, third use of the law, too, in that these are God's redeemed people. He's showing them how to live the very beginning of the Ten Commandments displays that, which is, you know, I, I am the God who's redeemed you, right? He's identifying himself and his relationship to his people, the desire to live. But then we have that second use playing a heavy role, which is the law also condemns. And, you know, the, especially as you get to the curses of Deuteronomy 28, I mean, that can't be any more clear. And then the entire story of the people of Israel essentially is that condemnatory use of the law, which is like, Hey, God told you to do this and you'll be blessed. And you haven't done it. You haven't done it. You haven't done it. And God's continually gracious and they continually sin. Eventually they're kicked out. They're punished. Of course, Jesus takes the curse, that curse upon himself on the cross. So we would say that the the covenant with Moses has both law and gospel, right? So it's not just law and it's not just gospel. It, it, it's both. Um, we get to the Davidic covenant. There's so much to talk about here. The Davidic covenant, <laughs> I'd say, is again, unconditional. It's a, it's a promise. I mean, God just says... Hey, there's going to be someone on a descendant of yours is going to be on the throne forever. Like it's the, it's not based on the people's obedience. It's just God's gracious promise. I think um, uh, one of the things from a Lutheran perspective that that we have going for us is that law and gospel isn't necessarily a system like the covenant theology is where you've, right. got to, you've got to shoehorn it. And, right. you know, one of the revolutionary things I learned and I, and I got this uh, first from Reed Lessing is that oftentimes law and gospel are happening simultaneously depending on yes. the perspective, you know, like if you work through the book of Amos as God is judging the oppressors, that's yep. law. God's judgment is gospel for those who are oppressed. And yes, that freedom isn't there in a covenantal system. You've got to make it work a different way. Yeah, I think that's very true. So when we're talking about law and gospel, we're not in some ways. Yes, we're talking about commands and promises, but it's not in such a way that you can just take a text and say, is this text law or is this gospel? And like, okay, sometimes maybe that's clear, but 
the example that I always point out is you pick a great one, which is, yeah, the arrest and oppressor, the same event can be both judgment on someone and deliverance for someone else. Think about Israel crossing the Red Sea. Like this is a very consistent scriptural theme, but maybe the most clear is, is the cross. Yeah. Like if there is gospel, it's the cross. Of course, that's kind of the whole point of the gospel is the cross. But at the same time, the cross can function as a word of condemnation to those who reject Christ you see this in Acts 2, the Sermon at Pentecost, which is Peter actually preaches the cross, which is what results in the people's feelings of guilt and needing to repent because they have recognized that they, they rejected Jesus. Uh, and so the cross, both of these things come together because you have, well, really you have the realization of like, hey, this is how bad your sin is. Like, this is what the law demands is death. And your sin is so bad that the son of God himself died because you've broken the law. Like that's, that's condemnatory to us, but it's also freeing because he paid the penalty for us. So they, they are kind of really interacting with each other. And, and it's not, it's not this kind of neat system of saying, well, this is law, this is gospel, this is covenant works, this is covenant of grace. Uh, we're, we're also talking largely about the just practical function of God's word, how God's word impacts us individually. And, and how it comes to us. Yeah, I think a really great example of what we're talking about here, uh, and, and I, I try to be as fair as, as I possibly can, uh, it's a book I know you've recommended. It's a book I really appreciate. It's called A Case for Millennialism by Kim Riddlebarger. Oh, it's um, a great book, yeah. Yeah, I've taught, I've taught eschatology at the seminary level, and that was a major textbook we used. Yeah. Uh, and Riddlebarger does a really fantastic job of laying out an actual case for millennialism, but right smack in the middle of the book, in one of my, my favorite chapters of scripture, Daniel 9. And, and in Riddlebarger's book, he jumps through so many fiery hoops to keep that on the level of covenant of grace, covenant yeah, of works. Yeah. He's he talking about covenant right. over and over again. And from a Lutheran perspective, Daniel 9 is super easy to explain in the law gospel paradigm because we don't have to artificially disconnect Daniel 9, 20 through 27 from the rest mm. of the chapter. You know, the first 19 books, Daniel is praying for forgiveness. And then the last mm -hmm. seven verses, God's like, okay, here how, here's how I'm going to forgive you. And he gives a prophecy of Jesus. You know, right. and, and, and I was kind of dismayed in reviewing that book because Riddlebarger has to make it all about covenant. And, and really, it's like, oh, man, this is great gospel right here. Right. Yeah, you see that a lot. And I think that's that's where you tend to see the weaknesses of the system, I think, when you get to particular texts and things get really confusing. Um, and I see that with the way that a lot of the texts dealing with um, the Mosaic Covenant work themselves out, too. Uh, but that that's a great point. I think that's a great point. And I, I love that book. I, um, I haven't assigned it officially to our seminary students when I teach our systematics courses, but it's always the book I recommend on millennialism because <laughs> I, I really do think it's the it's the best treatment of the subject. But this is where you get the kind of frustrations is like, oh, it's such a brilliant book. But then you get it, it, you see that those categories just kind of get you bogged down and confused and, and really don't end up being nearly as explanatory or helpful, I think, as as the reformed would want them to be. Yeah, I was I was super confused after that chapter because I was like, where does covenant yeah. fit in here? And he's talking about the priesthood and everything like that. And it was like, let's just talk about long gospel right here. Yeah, I um I, I remember having a conversation with with Gene Veith, who um 
he spoke at a conference that I that I hosted uh, on the topic of the two kingdoms, and he was telling me how he, you know, he was invited to this conference where David Van Drunen from S, uh, Westminster uh, and Escondido was speaking on on the two kingdoms, and he told me like, oh, I was really excited because it's like, oh, two kingdoms, like this is great that this stuff is, you know coming out in the reformed world. And then he said, and then I was so confused because he just kept talking about the Noahic covenant of common grace and how what ties back to like the pre-fall situation with Adam and the the kind of creation mandate. And he's and he's like, this was nothing like the Lutheran <laughs> interpretation. So, uh, you know, I think it, you see that you have, you add all of these, just kind of all of these extra complicating factors to these categories that just, I think, don't need to be there to explain the main themes. Well, good. I hope that kind of whets people's appetites for digging into this a little bit more. I should have plugged it at the beginning of the episode. I'll do it now. If you're really curious about this topic, Jordan has a book out on a Lutheran assessment of Calvinist theology. It's called The Great Divide. Highly recommend that book. Check it out. It's available on Amazon. They haven't canceled you yet on Amazon, right? Are you still good? Uh, I think I'm still good. Uh, <laughs> that's always a concern. Um, none of the, the issues that may get me canceled have been addressed in any of my books so far. Uh, and, and one that I'm writing right now, uh, those things are. But we'll see what happens. But okay. uh, I, I think that I think that book is okay. Uh, there, there are no controversial cultural issues there. Uh, and I don't, don't think that Amazon is too concerned about a you know critique of the covenant of works or something. Not yet. And you sell your books through your website as well, right? Am I right on that? Yeah. So um, we, so I run a publishing house, uh, Justin Center Publishing. It's part of what our organization does. Um, that book that was published by Whip and Stock. Yeah, so that's right. um, yeah, you, but you can find it through Whip and Stock. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it at Barnes and Noble, um, wherever you get books. All right. Well, Jordan, thank you for uh, this very brief uh, and and kind of whiplash-oriented run through uh, Calvinist theology and a Lutheran assessment. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for joining us. Please look us up on the web at beinglutheran.com. Also, invite a friend to check us out on Spotify and iTunes. For the latest from the Free Lutheran Bible College and Seminary in Plymouth, Minnesota, visit flbc.edu. Please join Pastor Jason next week as he wraps up his interview with Jordan Cooper. God bless you and have a great week.